I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Did you know that there is an ancient tradition in the church, stemming from around the 4th century, promoted by such illustrious theologians as Augustine and John Chrysostom and Gregory of Nyssa, uh, a thing called the Rices Pascalis, in other words, the laugh of Passover, or God's laugh, suggesting that since God has played the ultimate practical joke on death, that we should engage in that and enjoy it. And so people down through the centuries have had fun in the Sundays following Easter, playing jokes, pranks, laughs, dancing. You may not have heard of the Rices Pascalis because it was outlawed by Pope Clement X in the 17th century. Talk about your party pooper. (laughs) Reinhold Niebuhr said, humor is in fact a prelude to faith and laughter is the beginning of prayer. So in light of that, I have a story for you, or a couple. Do you have any stories? We're going to the Buckingham today, uh, taking some of the kids over. We're going to go over and sing and tell jokes and see what kind of jokes they have for us. So the local news station was interviewing an 80-year-old woman because she had just gotten married for the fourth time. The interviewer asked her questions about her life, what it felt like to be marrying again at 80, and about her husband's occupation. He's a funeral director, she said. Interesting, the newsman thought. He then asked her about her first three husbands and what they did for a living. She paused for a few moments, needing time to reflect on all those years. Then a smile came on her face and she answered proudly and said that she'd been married when she was in her 20s to a banker. He had died and when she was 40, she married a circus ringmaster. When he died, she married a preacher in her 60s. And now in her 80s, she married a funeral director. The interviewer looked at her quite astonished and asked why she had married four men of such diverse careers. She smiled and explained, I married one for the money, two for the show, (laughs) three to get ready and four to go. (laughs) One of my favorite church, uh, it's a true story actually, but it's very humorous. We used to refer to God in the old liturgy as God whose property is always to have mercy. And of course, you know, with the new liturgical changes and updating, they wanted people to refer to God whose nature is always to have mercy, because property was kind of strange. And so a friend of mine got up and got in his confusion referred to God whose nature is always to have property. <laughs> Telling a joke is much like sharing your faith story. It's hard to begin. When I say, you don't know any jokes, of course I immediately forget any joke I ever heard. But once you start telling them, they start coming back in and people start sharing jokes. It's much like that with sharing your story of faith. It's very hard at the beginning to introduce that into the conversation. But once you do, it's like opening a floodgate and everybody has stories of faith. Today's story in the Gospel reading is a wonderful story of the simple sharing of a meal. Jesus goes to where his friends are, quietly and unobtrusively, lights a small charcoal fire, prepares a meal of bread and fish, and he calls out across the water to his disciples, and I'd love to hear the tone of voice when he says, children, you don't have any fish, do you? And they respond, no. And then he says, try the other side of the boat. 
It must have been so humorous to see the disciples, like, after a night of frustration, catching nothing, and at the insistence of this stranger casting their nets and having so many they couldn't pull them in. So let's look, if you will, at the, at the gospel reading in the bulletin. It's a long reading. I'm not going to cover all of it. There's a huge amount in there we could look at. But let's just work our way through a couple of things with it. It begins and, end, it begins and then in verse 14, it kind of brackets. It usually says, this is how Jesus showed himself to his disciples. And in verse 14, this is how he appeared to the disciples. But it's the same Greek word. So it's like it's a bracketing of this story within the context of revealing who Jesus really is, of perceiving, of understanding, of experiencing Jesus. Now it's interesting how often Jesus' appearances center around a meal. It begins in verse 1 to say he did this at the Sea of Tiberias. The only other reference in John's gospel to the Sea of Tiberias is in John chapter 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000 on the shores of the Sea of Tiberias. And so we have these two meal stories but very different stories. Back then when he did this miraculous feeding of 5,000, they want to come and take him and make him king by force. So he has to slip away because they don't understand what his kingship would mean. And now it's much different. Just with this small group of disciples, he has another meal, another demonstration of power. And they begin to understand who this is. And then they ask, it says in the verse we'll come to it, they didn't dare to ask him who he was. Okay, we'll come to that. So in verse 2, here's this kind of um, funny little list of disciples. Not your normal list. You've got Sam and Peter. Thomas called the twin. Now Thomas is the one when the, uh, the friends of Lazarus come and told Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Uh, Jesus said, we'll go there in a couple of days. And his disciples say, we can't go back there because they'll kill you. Jesus said, I'm going anywhere. And Thomas says, oh, well, let's go and, we'll go, let's go and die with him. When Jesus rises from the dead, Thomas is the one who's not there. And they try to tell him Jesus rose from the dead. And he said, yeah, right. That's a joke. And he said, I won't believe unless I see the scars. So Jesus shows up again, shows him the scars. Thomas falls at his feet and sees him for who he is, my Lord and my God. Evidence that the early disciples perceived Jesus himself as divine, my God. We have... Uh, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. Remember Nathaniel? Philip from Cana tries to come and get him and said, hey, we found the Messiah. And uh, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now Nazareth is like 10 miles up the road. So it's probably this like rivalry. And then we have the, uh, the sons of Zebedee, but not named. They're always named. James and John, they're everywhere. But he doesn't even give them a name. And two other disciples now, why, why these two other disciples? He's named everybody else. Why not name these? I like to think of it almost as an invitation to us to put ourselves in the story. How would I have responded? Would I, how would I have been perceiving this? They've, why have they gathered? Is it because misery loves company? Peter says, I'm going fishing. It's almost like he needs to distract himself because he's seen the risen Lord the risen Lord isn't here right now, and now what am I supposed to do? Do you ever feel like that? I do. I believe in the risen Christ. I know he's not here to help me make some decisions, and I wonder what I should do. And so Jesus, and uh, sometimes we distract ourselves. 
In verse 4, Jesus stood, stands on the beach. The disciples don't know who it is. But Jesus gives them direction that helps them in their night fishing, helps them in their endeavor. When Jesus says, you haven't caught any fish, have you? They don't know who it is, and it's really no more than a casual greeting. Any stranger on the beach might have hailed them like that. And so often the message of the Lord reaches us through some experience or acquaintance that we deem quite common and ordinary, just an everyday occurrence. And it's not until later do we realize who that really was, what that was really like. In Vancouver, I was crossing the street one day, and, and I know a lot of people, on the, and this guy's crossing the street the other way, and I, I should have said hi, and I didn't know who it was, and I got to the other side, and I thought, that was Mario Lemieux, one of the best hockey players of all time, and I almost said hi to him like I knew him. We often think, in our faith, we don't know what to do. What does it matter? Can I do anything of significance anyway? Is my small efforts going to make any difference? Do you know the name Dionysius, the insignificant? Dionysius was a... Does anyone know him? Dionysius, probably one of the most influential people in all of history. He was a monk, born in the year 465 AD, uh, and up in the area of Scivia, which is like outer Mongolia, way in the back of nowhere. In the, around the year 500, he went to Rome and proposed to the leaders, the Pope, that they change the calendar. And that they change the calendar and number years from the year that Jesus was born. And so that we are still the inheritors of that calendar. It just came up. Do you remember Y2K? All that conversation around Y2K. What's going to happen? Well, he proposed New Year's Day would be not January 1st, nor would it be December 25th. He proposed March 25th. The day that we celebrate God being conceived in the womb of Mary. God indeed breaking into our world. That was New Year's Day for the next thousand years. It's very common for people, rulers, to try to change the calendar. Diocletian was one of the most vicious persecutors of the Christian church. He was Caesar and he changed the calendar couple hundred years before Dionysius and changed it so that New Year's Day would be his the day of his rule the day that he became power he considered himself the best Caesar ever and he wanted the calendar to reflect that he received uh, worship from people he received divine ascriptions to himself which he received and his only problem was the Christians wouldn't do it the Christians wouldn't say Caesar is Lord because they said Jesus is Lord. And the Greek word we use for that, kyrios, is the same root word for Caesar, just a different language. So when you're saying Jesus is Lord, kyrios, that it's saying Jesus is Caesar. And that was a problem. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered him, no. And so in Casting the net on the other side and seeing the great success now. It is the beloved disciple, in verse 7, who declares it is the Lord. The same disciple at the empty tomb with Peter. And the beloved disciple sees the empty tomb and says, he believes. He believes in the resurrection. And so Jesus, although he has a meal prepared, he invites them to bring some of the fish. Look in verse 10. Bring some of the fish you've just caught. And I love to think that Jesus provides the meal for us, but he invites us to contribute to it. 
and to work together and to be there. I'm struck by the tenderness of the invitation to come. Come have breakfast. Come be with me. Some churches put a great deal of emphasis on the Great Commission, and that certainly is a Great Commission to go into all the world preaching the gospel, but it's preceded by a great invitation to come, to come all who are weary, to come to those who need something to eat. And we receive that invitation today to gather around this simple table. Just like Jesus did at the, on Monday, Thursday, setting the table, putting a towel around himself, washing their feet, and then declaring that he himself would be the meal. And that in participating in the meal and loving one another would be the sign of our discipleship and our dedication to him. It says in the verse that they, were, they did not dare to ask him, who are you? That little three-word uh, question comes up in Acts. Did you notice that? Paul gets knocked off his horse and he says, who are you? What are you doing? Why are you getting in my way? How do you have the power to knock me off my horse? Who are you? And he says, Lord. And now the disciples, in the face of presence of Jesus, says they don't dare to ask him, who are you? Because they know. And I think when we gather around this table, we are like the disciples gathered. Like the disciples, we receive an invitation. And like the disciples, we sometimes ponder what's going on here. Who is God? Who is God in my life? Who is Christ? And what does he call me to do? This is his third manifestation, it says in verse 14. Let's remember that it's around a charcoal fire. The last time we had a charcoal fire, do you remember? Is when Jesus was arrested. And Peter's warming himself with the servants and asked if he's a friend of Jesus and he denies it three times. And now we have another instance of a charcoal fire and three times Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to profess his love, to receive his charge, to feed his sheep, even though it will be costly. On the road to Emmaus, when Jesus is risen and walks beside two disciples, opens up to them the scripture, and then in the breaking of the bread, realizes it's Jesus. When Jesus appears to the disciples in Luke, right after the resurrection, he says, have you anything to eat? To show that his, he was not a ghost. They were not hallucinating. So like the early disciples were gathered here together. Like the early disciples we respond and we've come to gather around this meal. Like the early disciples we seek to experience Christ in the Eucharist. And Christ in the community. And strengthened by the meal. Like the disciples we accept his charge to go into the world and to make a difference, to proclaim good news to the brokenhearted. We proclaim to people that Christ has defeated death and will have the last word, and we laugh, as it says in Psalm 2, how God laughs. We laugh at those who posture and pretend and presume to tell us who we are, because it is God who would tell us who we are. It is God who would tell us where we find our fulfillment and joy I love in Psalm 2. Do you see the Psalm 2? He has turned my wailing into joy and my mourning into dancing. God will have the last word. And the last word in our story is a word of invitation, a word of forgiveness, a word of love, and a word of mission to get on with the job he's given us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Amen.